We are so glad that you have chosen to stream this audio, and we hope it will encourage you in your faith and your walk towards Christ-likeness. As a side note, we pray that this audio sermon is just supplemental in your relationship with Christ and in no way replaces the church you are plugged into or the pastor that God has put in your life to shepherd and care for your soul. And so with that said, please enjoy this sermon. We have prayed that God would use it in your life. Amen. Amen. Well, please be seated. It's good to be with you all here in person and those who are joining us online. Uh, if you do have a Bible, turn to the Gospel of Luke. Uh, it's one of the four Gospels in the New Testament. We've been spending uh, most of this year thus far uh, walking through the Gospel of Luke and hearing about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. Uh, and we're going to continue to do that today. Uh, this week we're picking up uh, really on the tail end of last week's sermon, so here's my hope. My hope is that uh, it'll be a little bit shorter today, uh, but you know, I have said that before and, and miserably failed at that, so we'll see how this goes. Um, but as you're turning to Luke chapter 7, uh, we're going to be in verses 31 through 35, so if you want to just put a finger there and hold that for a minute. Uh, these are some difficult, difficult days that we're living in, and one of the things that I'm just kind of feeling the weight of this morning is, is how exhausting it all can be, you know, and, and maybe that's something we haven't really thought a ton about, especially after having been at home more, you know, maybe we think we should feel a little more rested because we've been at home more. But in reality, what we have experienced this year uh, is unlike anything that any of us have experienced in our lifetimes. And it is, in, in some sense, traumatic and difficult and hard in a number of ways. And so I'm going to pray for us this morning because I have a feeling that I'm probably not the only one who ever feels exhausted in this time. So I'm going to pray for us and ask God to speak to us and just kind of breathe life into his word as he speaks to us this morning. So let's pray. Father God, we come to you this morning and maybe we've got a number of things that are on our hearts and minds, things that weigh us down things that we don't know how to make sense of, things that you know, maybe we feel like we should have a better grasp of and be able to deal with more effectively, but right now we're just in this spot where we're tired and we're in need of your grace this morning. God, we need you. We need you to speak to us. We need you to lift us up with your strength because we are weak. God, I'm reminded of the words that we just sang, yet not I, but through Christ in me. And so, Lord, would you let that be true of us this morning? God, help us to draw near to you and rely upon you and your grace, especially in days where Honestly, we just don't know if our strength can carry us through. So God, speak to us this morning. Open our hearts to hear your word. And help us to follow you more closely, Jesus. It's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen. All right, well, it is, it is good to be with you. Uh, I know I say that a lot, but it, it really is. Uh, it's good to be with those of you who are able to join us in person and those online. Gosh, I'm so looking forward to seeing you. Um, not, I don't say that to rush you to jump back in before you're ready or before you feel safe because I want you to make wise decisions. But I just want you to know, like, man, we're so, so excited to see you. Anyways, let's, let's jump into Luke. So last week we began a message and got two-thirds of the way through uh, called The Expectations of Religious People. And you and I, we know religious people, uh, not just because uh, those of us in this room are in some sense religious people. As followers of Jesus, we, we practice 
uh, a form of religion, hopefully the form of religion is the kind that James talks about in James chapter 1 that we'll talk about a little bit later. Um, but we talked about these kind of two different kinds of religion and two different kinds of religious people last week. And we mentioned how there are both law-driven religious people and love-driven religious people. And how the, the difference is very key because the difference is one is focused upon really themselves and their rules and their ability to keep those set of rules and others' inabilities to keep those set of rules. And the other is, is driven by love for God and love for people, love for neighbor driven by the two greatest commands and Jesus' spirit in them, empowering them to walk in those things. And so there's these two different kinds of religion and religious people. One is, is really focused on, on our works and our abilities, and the other is living out of a security in God's grace. You see that difference you see, if you're, if you're law-driven and law-focused, you will be constantly insecure because the reality is, is that whatever standards you set for yourself, you won't even measure up to those, let alone God's. Have you noticed that before? That whatever kind of expectations you have of yourself, you probably deal with a variety of emotions in response to those things because we never seem to measure up to our own expectations of ourselves. And then if we honestly take a moment and step back and think about the God that is presented in the Bible and how holy and perfect and awesome and beautiful and loving and kind and true he is, then we can't possibly hope to meet his standards and expectations because what we know to be true about ourselves is that we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us. We know that we don't meet our own expectations, let alone God's. And so the thing about law-driven religious people is they are always miserable. Sure, they may sometimes put on a facade of, of fake joy or fake happiness, but really they're doing so to convince you that they are. Because they're not fooling themselves. Because they don't meet the standards and they know it. And so then they get angry and they, and they respond to others in, in harsh ways with harsh expectations that are sometimes even larger than the expectations they place on themselves. And, and certainly sometimes not even the same expectations that God has for us. They place these expectations on others in harsh and angry ways because they're angry about their own inabilities to measure up. You see, at the heart of people's actions is, is a heart. Is a heart that believes things about God that believes things about others, that believes things about life and the way that we're supposed to live it. So last week we talked about the expectations of religious people and, and what we've realized is that religious people often have expectations of both God and others. And, and they have these expectations that, that God is going to be different than he actually is, that people should be more like they want them to be. And then when those things don't measure up, they, it's like they, they focus in even more on themselves and their rules. So religious people, they expect God and others to agree with them, and they struggle with the idea of, of having to humble themselves and listen to God and his word and to other believers and, and learn from them and understand them and walk with them in loving ways. And so the question this morning, the first question I have for us is, is what kind of religious person are you? Before we even jump into verses 31 through 35, what kind of religious person are you? Are you the law-driven kind, always focused on yourself 
and your abilities to meet some sort of standard and then focus on how others aren't meeting that standard? Or are you the love-driven kind that's focused on who God is and his gracious, merciful, and just nature that he has extended his grace totally undeserved by us, but he's extended it to us anyways in the person of Jesus? And are you driven by that kind of love that God has shown to us in your interactions with others? So are you the law-driven kind of religious person or are you the love-driven kind I mentioned James chapter 1 earlier. In James chapter 1, verse 27, James writes this. He says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. You see, that word religion, it has so many connotations, oftentimes negative ones. That's why it's important to point out that the the Bible speaks of religion in kind of two different kinds of ways, and and one is this this beautiful thing that's meant to be uh, devotion to God and devotion to the good of others. That's what James is talking about when he mentions religion. He says this kind of religion, it's pure and undefiled, it's it's good. He says it's, it's the kind of religion that you live out under God and who he is. And notice two, two kind of ideas that he has here. He says, this kind of religion, this love-driven, pure, undefiled religion before God is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. So the first thing that we notice about this kind of religion is that it works for the benefit and the good of others, especially those who are oppressed or neglected, those who are in need. Have you noticed so far in the Gospel of Luke that when Jesus talks about what he has come to do, he he confronts sin and he calls people to respond to his grace, to his kingdom, to himself. He's the Messiah that's come to make their salvation possible. But but he, he has this emphasis in his ministry on those who are most in need. He, he tells the Pharisees at, at, at different points that he's not come to save the righteous, but sinners and those who are sick. He says it's those who are sick that need a doctor. And so Jesus, he often spends most of his time with those who are most in need, with the poor, with the lame, with those who are sick and in need of healing, with those who are oppressed and need freedom and justice. Jesus, even, even earlier in this passage, do you remember from last week what he said when, when John the Baptist sent a couple of his disciples to Jesus and, and told them to ask him, are you the one who was to come? Because John, as, as faithful of a man as he was and as loving of a man as he was, And as close to God as he was, as a prophet who spoke for God to God's people, John wrestled with doubts. John wrestled with questions because even John was surprised sometimes at the ways in which God worked. So do you remember last week what Jesus said in response to these questions? Look at at it with me. Let's see here. In verse 21, here's what we read. So John's disciples have just asked Jesus, are you the one that was to come or shall we look for someone else? And it says in verse 21, in that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. So Jesus, like we talked about last week, he answered their question with action first. He showed them who he was. And then in verse 22, he answers their question. And he answered them and said, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Do you see the groups of people that Jesus is ministering to 
that he's proclaiming good news to? It's the poor, it's the afflicted, it's the sick, it's those who can't see or hear, it's those who are oppressed and in need. Jesus came for the needy. And it was unexpected. This wasn't the way that even John expected him to work. And John was the one sent by God to prepare the way for people to understand what Jesus was about to do. And even John didn't quite grasp it. He expected a Messiah who would come and overthrow the Romans, establish a political kingdom, and rule. And one day he, he will return and establish his rule over the entire earth. And, and there will be true peace. But initially, as he comes to just start establishing his kingdom, he does so for those who are in need of justice, deliverance, healing, help. Those who are in need. And it's totally unexpected. And Jesus says, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Before we even jump into the points that I intended to make today, I just feel like I have to say, because I've seen so much in our evangelical culture over the last couple of years, I've seen so much that leads me to believe that if Jesus were standing in front of us and he were ministering to people today, that we would be offended by him. Does that sit with you? You hear what I'm saying? If Jesus came into our country and culture and moment right now, he would be ministering to people in ways that we do not expect him to do. He would be caring for the needy in ways that we should be. And a lot of religious people who call themselves Christians would be revealed to be the law-driven kind and not the love-driven kind. He would come and he would minister to the needy and the oppressed, and some of us would be offended by him. Christians, do you hear me right now? Because the way that I see us respond to the things that are happening right now shows me that this is true shows me that if Jesus were to show up now and minister in the same ways that he did here in the Gospel of Luke, that some of us would be offended by him and we would show ourselves to be law-driven religious Pharisees rather than love-driven followers of Jesus. That's a hard word, isn't it? This is why we need God's grace and we need God to show up in powerful ways and bring change in us. I love, there's this quote from Tim Keller. And it's, it, I'm gonna butcher it a little bit, so forgive me, and you'll have to look it up later, but the way it goes is, is something along the lines of the more you understand and experience God's grace, the more you will have a heart for justice the more you will have a heart for the oppressed, for the needy, for the sick, for those who are in desperate need. And we're gonna talk about in just a few moments how, how the way we enter into the kingdom of God is being aware that we are utterly needy, each and every one of us. So we'll get there in a moment. But, but the first thing I had to point out as we jump into 31 through 35 is there's two different kinds of religious people and are you the law-driven or the love-driven kind? And secondly, and here's where we're gonna focus the rest of our time today is, is that religious people reveal themselves to either be childish or childlike. And we'll talk about what that means, but let's start in verse 31. We'll read through 35. I'm going to explain a few things as we go. Jesus says, To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? 
You see, Jesus, he's, he's going to make a comparison. He's going to have a simile. He's going to have an analogy, an illustration to show what this generation is like. So what does Jesus mean when he says, what shall I compare the people of this generation? What's this generation mean? Well, when you hear those words, this generation, what do you think about in the Old Testament? You probably remember some of this kind of language being used to describe God's people Israel when they had rebelled against his purposes and walked away from his good purposes for them. We just heard Jesus earlier in our passage last week talk about how the Pharisees have rejected God's good purpose for their lives, how the religious people have rejected God and his plans for them. Those who were supposed to know God the best, the supposed to know his word the most, rejected God's purposes. And this is what religious people have struggled with since the beginning. In the first five books of the Bible, we read about Israel's story and, and their beginning and how God selected them and chose them out of love to be a people of his own. Though they didn't deserve it, just like you and I don't. He chose them anyway. He chose to love them anyway. Called them to himself. Gave them a good purpose to be his light to the nations. That they would be the ones to show the world who God is. And he delivers them in the exodus. They were in chains. And God delivered them miraculously. He parted the Red Sea, and they walked through on dry ground, and then when they were through, their enemies were crushed by the waves and the water. And what happens when they get to the other side, when they start to walk through the desert? Because here's the thing, when God delivers us, when God saves us, what we start to expect is for things to be easier going forward. But what God's people often find is a desert, is difficulty, is that walking with God in a broken, fallen world is not an easy thing. And so we're prone to forget and dismiss all that God has done for us. Just like the Israelites did in those 40 years in the desert, they forgot this miraculous deliverance of God. They forgot that this God was for them and for their good. They forgot that this God was one who could spread the waters and allow them to walk on dry ground. It was impossible, and he did it for them. And they were quick to forget. And they dismissed his good plans for them. They worshiped idols. They turned to other things, other gods, other pleasures in life. Because they forgot and they didn't believe any longer that God was actually for their good and he was present and he was working. And so the Bible uses this generation to describe that generation of God's people that forgot and dismissed his good plans and purposes for them so quickly even after God did miracles on their behalf. And you've heard me say this before, but we are no different. Some of us, we pray for miracles, for God to do miraculous things that only God can do. But here's the reality, is that if God did some of those things, we would be just as quick to forget. Sometimes we think that if God will just do what we want him to do, if he'll just heal our loved one, if, if he'll just bring them back to us, if he'll restore our marriage, if he'll deliver us, then we'll love him and worship him and follow him forever and we'll do what he wants us to do. But here's what happens. I see this with, with people's finances all the time. It's, it, gosh, it's, it's so devastating because we get into this spot in life, whether it's your finances or your marriage or, or whatever it is, where things just aren't working and, and what you're doing isn't cutting it. So maybe with finances, we'll just take that analogy. Like, We've all been in a spot before probably where we didn't know how we were going to make ends meet. And we didn't know what we were going to do. 
And maybe in that moment, what I've seen so often is that people turn to God. They start going to church again. They start going to be around God's people. They start having people pray for them. They start doing all the religious things that maybe they even crack open their Bible that sat on the shelf for the last 10 years. Because they've realized they're in a spot where like, man, what they're doing isn't cutting in. And if, if, if there's not a God who shows up for them, then they're in some serious trouble. And so they start trying to get God's help with their finances. And here's the sad thing is that when God does bless, when God does provide, even if it's in an unexpected, even miraculous way, what I've seen is people are quick to forget. They're quick to dismiss God's purposes when they get what they want. Because the reality is is that most of the time we don't want God, we want God's gifts. And then God is so much better than the gifts. He has so much more for you and and having him. That's what we sang about earlier, that God has given us everything in Jesus. He's what we actually need. And God cares about us enough to extend his own son to us. But we're quick to forget. And so what I see is people, they, they, get, they get the finances they need to make ends meet, and maybe even some more. Maybe God's really generous and blesses them in significant ways, and then, you know what? All of a sudden, they begin to think that they got themselves there. They forget how God got them there. And so sure enough, you see, they stop coming to church. Soon they haven't read their Bible in months, maybe years. And they're content with what they've gotten. And they miss the real gift, which is God himself. And so we're prone to forget, friends. We're prone to dismiss God's good plans and purposes. We are like the people of this generation that the Bible so often refers to. And so when Jesus says, to what then shall I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? He's talking to the Pharisees, the religious people, the lawyers, the scribes. He's talking to the religious people of the day, and he's talking to us. I'll say this again and again, but you can't keep reading the Bible as though it doesn't meet you where you're at. You're meant to read the Bible in such a way as we come to the Bible and good hermeneutics says, okay, what is the author saying? What does he mean? What was his original intent to the audience he was writing to? So we say, okay, what is Luke trying to get the people he's writing to to see? But if our hermeneutics stop there, if our interpretation of the Bible, of God's word stops there, then we have failed to complete the task of reading the Bible. Because the Bible is inspired by the spirit of the living God and he is still speaking to us today. And so if we don't ask the question, how does this apply to my life? Then friends, we have not read the scriptures. And so we have to ask, when Jesus says, to what shall I compare the people of this generation? We have to ask, Are we this generation? Are we like the people he's speaking to here? Most of the time, we want to be like the John the Baptist. We want to be like the prophets. We want to be like the the people who, the good Samaritan who, who is loving and kind. But most of the time, we're not the hero of the story. We are the one the story is confronting. Jesus says, to what shall I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? And here's what he says they're like. In verse 32, they are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. So Jesus says, religious people, they're, they're childish. They're like children. They're like children and that they, they sing a happy song and they expect you to do what, what they want you to do. They expect you to be happy with them. 
They sing a sad song and they expect you to be sad with them or sad for them. They expect to be able to, to play you something or to play a game with you like a child does and you to respond the way the child wants you to. Parents out there, you know what it's like to play a game with, with children. Children have their own expectations and rules for the games, don't they? Gosh, you try to teach a child how to play a board game. I mean, by the end of it, you realize you're not playing that board game. You're playing their game. Children have their own rules. They have their own expectations. And as a parent, you, as you shepherd them and, and bring them up, you, you start to teach them that, like, eventually they start to realize the world isn't revolving around them. As much as you love them and adore them, it doesn't revolve around them. And, and that their expectations have to shift and change. And that you have to play by the real rules of the game. You're trying to, to wean out of them the childishness. You want them to be childlike. We'll talk about that in a minute. But you're trying to, to correct some of the childishness as you raise them into adults. And so Jesus says that law-driven religious people, they're childish. They expect you to play by the rules of their game they expect you to do what they want when they do something to get you to do it. Jesus says they're like children. And going back to our quickness to forget and dismiss God's good purposes, parents, how quick are your children to forget the good things that you've done for them? Just to use this analogy even further of being like children. I mean, you can, I mean, uh, parents say, you say your, your, your kid, they, they beg you for that, that big thing they've been wanting. And maybe it's an Xbox or, you know, a, a really expensive doll or whatever it is. You're at the store and like, hey man, they've been pounding on your door about this for months. And you had a pretty good day, a pretty good week at work, and, and you're feeling generous, you know, and you love your kiddo, you know. And so you're like, you know what? Yeah, buddy. Let's get the Xbox. Let's get that game you wanted. Let's get that dollhouse you wanted. And, and, and you buy whatever it is for them. And you're so happy and excited because you see the joy on their face. And you get through that checkout line and you're feeling good about yourself. You had a good week at work. You feel like the best parent in the world. And then you got to stop at the gas station on the way home to pick up some gas, and you bring them in with you to pay for your gas or something. I mean, most of us don't go in to pay for gas anymore, but anyways. You know, it, you bring them into the gas station because you got to grab something from inside. Let's say that. And they see that bag of chips that they love. And they're like, Mom, Dad, can I, can I get the chips? Can I get the candy bar? Can I get the donuts? And you say, no, buddy, I'm, I'm sorry, you know, we got to eat dinner here in a few minutes, you know, we got to go home. And they turn to you and throw the biggest tantrum you've ever seen in the middle of this gas station. Everybody's looking at you like, what is wrong with your kid? Because children are quick to forget, aren't they? They're quick to forget what a loving father or a loving mother has done for them and for their good and for their joy. And as soon as there's something they want and you tell them no, and they're not all happy anymore. They're upset and they're throwing a fit. And Jesus says that law-driven religious people like the Pharisees and like some of us are like this, we are childish like this. That when God doesn't do the things we want, when we want him to do them, we throw tantrums. When people don't act the way that we think they should act, we throw tantrums. We are childish. But we need to be childlike. You see, 
let's look at what he says in 33 through 35 here, okay? So in 33, he says, For the John the Baptist has come eating no bread, drinking no wine, and you say, He has a demon. Then the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. You see, here's the thing about law-driven religious people. You'll never make them happy because they don't want to be happy. They want you to know that they're better than you because of the things they've done and the things they don't do. And they want you to know it because really they come from, from this place of deep insecurity because they don't know it themselves. And so they have outlandish expectations of others and, and, they, and they act like they meet all the standards but inside they know they don't. And so they look at somebody like John the Baptist who you know, practiced kind of this aestheticism out of, out of devotion to God. He denied himself pleasures in life out of his devotion to the Lord. So he, he didn't eat all the, all the wonderful things. He didn't drink alcohol. He didn't, he didn't do these things. And he did it out of a devotion to God because he knew how devoted God was to, to his people and his own holiness and glory. And so they look at John, the law-driven religious people, the Pharisees, the lawyers, they look at John and they say, that dude's got a demon. I mean, look, he doesn't even drink wine. He doesn't even eat bread with us. He must have a demon. There must be something wrong with him. And then they look at Jesus, the Son of Man, the Son of God, the Messiah himself, and they see Jesus eating and drinking, meaning he eats the good foods with his friends. He sits at the table with them and enjoys life. And he drinks alcohol. Do we just say that in a Baptist church? Jesus, I mean, gosh, his first miracle was to make the best wine the earth has ever seen. And it had alcohol. And he drank alcohol. He enjoyed the good gifts that God has given us. He, he wasn't a drunkard or a glutton. But he did enjoy the good gifts God has given to us. So here's John the Baptist over here who's denying himself some of these pleasures in life. And he's doing it out of devotion to God. And then here's Jesus who's enjoying the good things that God has given us in creation, like good food and good wine. And he's doing it too out of a devotion to his father. You see, Christians, just as a side note, we have got to stop condemning one another for this or this. We have got to stop looking down on those who devote themselves to God and deny themselves pleasures in life. And we have got to, if we're over here, stop looking down on those who enjoy the good gifts of his creation. It is not sinful to not drink, and it is not sinful to drink. It is not sinful to deny yourself some, some, some good foods in life out of devotion to God and you know, maybe you're dieting and being healthy and taking care of the body he's given you. It's also not sinful to enjoy some of the good gifts he's given us and, and just celebrate God's goodness and eating good food. It tastes good. You can worship God through both. Stop fighting with one another. Stop condemning one another and looking down on each other. That's what I'm trying to get us to see is that oftentimes we act like law-driven religious people like the Pharisees. Instead of loving God and loving one another and seeking to understand and actually fellowship together, actually grow together, you can have a different decision and and still have fellowship and love for one another. You can land in different spots on these kinds of things. 
John the Baptist and Jesus were in two different spots. So to think that in, in your own church, whether it's here at JBC or you're watching online, you go somewhere else, like, to think that in your own church you won't have people in different spots on these things, like, man, that's crazy. You're going to have some John the Baptist-esque people who, like, the way they show their devotion to the Lord is they deny themselves some things. And you're going to have some, some, some people who are, who are looking at Jesus and they're like, man, Jesus enjoyed some good gifts in creation. I'm going to enjoy those to the glory of God as well. You get the point. But religious people, they're not pleased with either of these things because they're never going to be happy with what you do or don't do. They don't want to be. And so we need to stop living for the expectations of others and start living for the glory of God who's actually good to us. This is one of the hardest lessons that I have tried to learn and I'm still learning as a pastor. Because here's the reality about churches. I don't know if you've realized this, but in churches you have both law-driven and love-driven religious people. It's always the case. I don't care how amazing the, the church you went to, you know, back in your hometown or 10 years ago or, or, or how amazing we think that our church is. We have law-driven and love-driven religious people in churches. And as a pastor, gosh, I love both of them. I love all of you. And, and, and when you love someone, you, you want them to be happy with you. Again, parents, you know this. You, you want your kids to be happy with you. you. You love them. You adore them. But the hardest thing to realize is that we can't live for making other people happy because if we live for making other people happy, we're often not going to be making the Lord pleased with us. If you live to make others happy, you won't make God happy. Because the thing about people is people often disagree with God. And so if we're always living to meet the expectations of others, and and this is the hardest thing to learn as a pastor, is if I live to please you all and the opinions you have and the things you want me to do or not do, then I'm going to fail at my most primary calling in loving the Lord my God with my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because people often disagree with God. We do, don't we? And so we've got to shift our priorities. We've got to start living to please God rather than to please people. Live to please the Lord and love him and then live to love people well and point them to him. That's what we've got to, we've got to shift and do. We're not going to make the religious people around us happy. It's not going to happen. But you know what? I'm, I'm willing to not make some people happy if it means that I'm living in a way that's pleasing to my God. And I know I'll be tempted to not do that in ways on a daily basis, and I need God's grace to help me. Gosh, I didn't even know if I wanted to say the thing about alcohol because of that. You see, we face these kinds of temptations all the time. But we've got to live to please the Lord and not to please religious people because they won't be pleased with us. Jesus has two accusations made against him. Did you notice this? The first one is that he enjoys life too much. Okay? He's come eating and drinking. You say, look at him, a glutton and drunkard. And he has a second accusation that he has too many questionable, unbelieving, uh, non-religious friends. He says, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Do people make the same accusations about you as they do about Jesus? Do they accuse you of enjoying life too much because you're so thrilled with who God is and what he's given you and, and you enjoy the good gifts of his creation and what he's given to you? Do they accuse you of enjoying life too much? It might be evidence that you're closer to Jesus than they think. Now, certainly there's, a, there, there's error to avoid on both sides of this, right? Legalism 
living by rules like the law-driven religious people, and licentiousness, living without rules. No one can tell me what to do. I'm going to do what I want when I want to do it all the time. Okay? That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about living your life in humble submission to who God is and what he's done for you and enjoying the good gifts he gives you. Do people accuse you of enjoying life too much because you do that? Do people accuse you of, of having too many unsavory friends? Friends who don't do the religious thing. Friends who don't yet believe. We spend time with them anyway. People accuse you of that. If they don't, maybe there's a problem. And if they do, you might be doing something right. And again, I'm, I'm not saying that your only company, the only friends you have should be people who don't know Jesus. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying you and your friends who know Jesus ought to know some people who don't know him and love them well. And then Jesus in verse 35, he says, yet wisdom is justified by all her children. So here's what we have to realize. Law-driven people are childish. Love-driven people are childlike in their faith in God and their love for others. And, and what we read about wisdom in scripture is what? What's the beginning of wisdom? Think back to Proverbs. It's the fear of the Lord, right? It's this holy reverence for who God is and his power, his might, his character, his grace, his mercy, his justice, who he is. You begin to revere him, respect him, be in awe of him. You fear him. That's where wisdom begins. That's how you become a, a child of wisdom, as you fear the Lord. Wisdom in Scripture, to be a child of wisdom, is to submit yourself to God and his plans and good purposes. And Jesus, what he goes on to, to say in, in Luke and in the other Gospels as well, about children and being like children and faith, as, as he says this in Luke 18, 17, he says, truly I say to you, who, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Here's the other thing that we have to understand about children that helps us understand this. Children are needy. Children are always need, in need of someone to care for them and help them. They need a parent to protect them and deliver them from trouble. You see, if we don't come into the kingdom of God like children who are needy and desperate for God's help, then we don't come into it at all. Coming into the kingdom begins with the fear of the Lord. Being a child of wisdom begins with understanding that wisdom begins with submitting yourself to God because you know your neediness. You know how desperately you need him because you're, you're, you're sinful. You sin against God and other people. And then you suffer and you need help and you need restoration and healing. And the only one who can do these things for you is God himself. And so here's our question today, friends. What kind of religious person are you? Are you the law-driven kind who is also childish? Because you have all these unrealistic expectations of, of who God should be and what he should do for you and then also what other people should live like and act like? Or are you the love-driven kind of religious person who who visits orphans and widows in their affliction and also keeps oneself unstained from the world. What that means when James says that, he's not saying you live like a hermit and you separate yourselves and you're holier than thou. What he means is that you devote yourself to God and his good plans and purposes and you keep yourself unstained from the world for the purpose of loving God and loving people so that you can visit the orphans and widows in their distress and help 
that's the kind of love-driven religion that understands that we come to God like children, utterly in need of his help and his grace. And so are you childish or are you childlike? Are you law-driven or are you love-driven? Because if we begin to see Jesus for who he really is, then it humbles us. And it creates in us a a love-driven devotion to God and the good of others. And we will come to God like children in utter need of his grace to be what brings us in. There's no other way into the kingdom than to come like children who need God to bring you in himself. Let's pray. Father, we, we come to you this morning and we know that we struggle with the very things that we've seen in this passage today. We know that sometimes we are the law-driven religious Pharisee and we need you to wake us up to that. God, would you, would you cause us all to ask the question when we see things like this in Scripture? Would you cause us to ask first, where and how am I acting like a Pharisee, like a law-driven religious person? Would you help us to see those things? Show us our blind spots. God, help us to want to turn from that, to turn to you, to understand your grace in deeper ways. God, show us that the way into the kingdom is acknowledging our need for you and your grace in the person and work of Jesus. God, I pray that no one in this room today and no one joining us online would leave this service without you waking them up. And showing them what it means to be childlike rather than childish. God, we so badly want to be a part of your kingdom. Help us to do so by trusting in Jesus. In whose beautiful name we pray. Amen.